I'm Danny Kelly, host of the Ringer Fantasy Football Show. And from now until the draft, we are turning our feed into the Ringer NFL Draft Show to talk all things draft with me, Danny Heifetz, Ben Solak, and Craig Horlbeck. Check us out on Tuesdays and Thursdays and search the Ringer NFL Draft Show. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com FYC. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including outstanding limited series and outstanding supporting actress in a limited series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. It is Monday, April 3rd. It's been a big news week for the town, so we're going to do a couple topics today. The WWE, pro wrestling company, finally found its buyer. As many of us suspected, Endeavor, which already owns the UFC, closed an all-stock and equity deal last night that values WWE at $9.3 billion. We'll get into whether that's a good price. Then there's been some Netflix developments. As we've talked about, they were making way too many movies. They want to make fewer of them, better, they say or at least more audience for their money. So last week, the film chief, Scott Stuber, combined a couple of the film divisions, laid off some people, and two longtime executives left, including one who was known for prestige films, documentaries. We'll get into what that means for Netflix. Also on the Netflix front, I reported in my Puck newsletter this past week that the Motion Picture Academy is discussing adding a requirement for the 2024 Oscars that to be eligible for Best Picture, films must first play in theaters for at least a week in one theater in 15 to 20 of the top 50 markets in the U.S. That would be a big change from having to play for only a week in one of the six major markets. The goal is to boost movie theaters, of course, bring these awards caliber movies to more people in more cities, and acknowledge that the Film Academy exists to promote film, and a big part of film is the theatrical experience. Obviously, streamers like Netflix would be targeted here. They're not happy. And critics of the idea, they lit up my inbox this week, they say it will have a negligible impact on movie going, but will create new hurdles for films to qualify and smacks of elitism. I have some thoughts there, and I bet Lucas Shaw does too. He's back again this week to talk WWE, Netflix, and the Oscars. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Lucas Shaw. Welcome back, Lucas. Great to be here. And I judge based on your location that that you did not go to WrestleMania over the weekend. I did not. Unfortunately, I was out of town. Uh, it would have been nice to be there for this historic weekend because, as I mentioned in the intro, WWE has a new owner. Assuming this deal goes through, Endeavor has purchased the WWE it's actually a merger. They are merging WWE at a value of $9.3 billion with UFC, which Endeavor already owns, into a new separate publicly traded company. does not have a name yet. And this will be what they say is a sports media combat sports powerhouse. 
It will trade under the ticker symbol TKO, I believe, which is, uh, for those unfamiliar, the, the jargon for technical knockout, unless I screwed wow. that up. Wow, that's cute. Um, the Do we know what the name is, though? They, I don't think they've said the name. It'll be something lame. It'll be like Celador or something weird. Um, so what do you think of this deal? I, I mean, my, I, my first reaction when I saw it was, wow, you pulled it off. Or you actually pulled this off because everyone thought that it would be too expensive for a company like Endeavor to pay the $9 billion plus it would take to buy WWE and that it would likely go to someone like Amazon or Comcast or one of the broadcasters that actually airs the rights. But I always thought it made the most sense to go to Endeavor because they are very good at exploiting these kinds of rights. They've done a great job with, with UFC and have done amazing television deals for them. Um, WWE makes sense, and they did it in a transaction that makes sense for them financially. It's not adding debt to the company, and it's allowing the financials of the sports leagues to spill over into the other entity, Endeavor, which has the representation business and all the other stuff. What do you think of the deal? Yeah, I mean, look, I always thought that Endeavor made the most sense. You look at their track record with with UFC, and it was a very similar transaction where they took this business that is very lucrative, fast, growing quickly, growing faster than, than than WWE now, but has a little bit of like a little bit of a stink to it because not everyone wants to be in business with Dana White, who's uh, you know somewhat of a difficult founder. Not everybody wants to own something that's combat sports. You know, there's something still unseemly for some people about that. Um, people people beating the shit out of each other. Yes. Yeah, it's just like not not something that ever like Disney maybe doesn't want to own that, right? <laughs> um, and and but they they built it into a far more valuable company today than it was then by striking lucrative media deals with ESPN and sort of finding synergies and integrating it with the rest of the company, good at selling ads, all those things. Um, and so they always made the most sense, especially because as I w- reported on the process, it became clear that Comcast, which is the biggest media partner for WWE, did not want to own WWE for su- partially for some of those reasons. I think folks in Philadelphia, Comcast headquarters were a little uneasy, both with the combat part of it. And also just remember that less than a year ago, Vince McMahon had resigned from the company because he had you know, basically paid some women to to be quiet about allegations of harassment and assault. Um, I mean, this is a huge win for Vince McMahon. I mean, they yeah. were on CNBC. First of all, they were on CNBC this morning. The dude looks like a 1920s movie villain now. Have you seen this mustache? I mean, it's it's unbelievable. You know, maybe maybe we got to get you a mustache. <laughs> I would not look anywhere near like the uh, villainous Vince McMahon. Although the thing the thing with him though is that he was never gonna just walk away. I mean, even now, he's saying he's not going to be involved in the nitty-gritty of the creative. He'll still be involved. I mean, that's kind of the value of Endeavor, is that they've shown with UFC that Ari Emanuel will take a kind of backseat to these very public founder guys. And Dana White has been the face of UFC, even though he no longer owns it. And I think that will probably be the case, at least in the short term. For WWE, although they do have this transition where Triple H, the the wrestler, has kind of been in charge of creative, uh, so I think that that Vince will still sort of be there, and the fans will know he's around, which will probably be important for the business. Well, and and both Vince and Ari, who are sort of the kind of the founder uh, and people who loom large over their businesses, have very capable 
second in command or seconds mm-hmm. in command, right? Like Ari Emanuel has Mark Shapiro who handles a lot of the day-to-day business at, at Endeavor. And he was at ESPN before that. Correct. And, and he'd done a bunch of jobs. Ex- experienced sports media guy. Vince McMahon has Nick Khan, former CAA agent who's who went from being president of WWE to now CEO and he'll run the wrestling business. Do you think Nick stays? Well, he'll stay as long as whatever he's contractually obligated to stay and he'll get a very large payout, I imagine. Right. Yeah, I imagine that too. I mean, Vince is not young either i mean at some point these both these leagues will sort of outlive their founder impresario types um but you know these businesses do not come without problems especially i'm wondering what ari emmanuel is going to do with the saudi business that wwe is in they are very much in bed with the saudis and if you remember wme the agency that endeavor owns they gave back hundreds of millions of dollars from the Saudi government when the Jamal Khashoggi murder was on the front page of the headlines. Um, and now, you know, Ari's very public about that and sort of not doing business in an overt way with the Saudis. Now he's got WWE, who's not just doing business. They're very much in bed with the Saudis. Yeah, well, I, I, it will be an interesting test because it feels like some of the resistance to taking Saudi money has waned in certain corners of the business world. Um, and so unless there's a, you know, a steady drumbeat of coverage about that, they may not be as uncomfortable with it. Or clients. I mean, yeah. this is a talent business if clients yeah. raise a stink. Yeah, clients is probably that's that's the reason I'd heard for why, even though the Saudis wanted to invest in some Hollywood management companies, that most management companies probably wouldn't take the money. Um, I mean, the other thing for for Ferrari with with WWE is that for all of its strength, the ratings have been a little bit soft, and there is now a kind of a real competitor in AEW. The WWE hasn't minted a new star in a little while. Uh, I say all that, and they're about to negotiate their sort of next media rights deal, and I fully expect them to get a huge increase. Um, but they, you know, they they need to make sure that the that the asset or that the the shows are still appealing to people. Um, yeah, I'm not too worried about that because even if the ratings decline, I mean, they have this Peacock deal, and you know, who knows whether Peacock is the best partner for them going forward? These kind of differentiated content hubs. I think are going to be really valuable going forward because they deliver an audience. And if you're a streamer, it's like plug and play. You bring in the WWE and you know a certain number of people are going to come over with it. And that's, I think just, that's not going away anytime soon. That's definitely the bet he's making. And and why, honestly, I thought that more of the big media companies should have considered buying WWE because there are not a lot of assets like that, that you can, you can, you control the storytelling Lot people tune in live, and you can own it top to bottom. And Ari and now, they're gonna have gambling. Remember, they were talking about having gambling at some point, which I I think sounds ridiculous. I remain skeptical. I thought yeah. that was probably pretty silly, but I do think that um, you know, Ari now has two of those assets in in UFC and and WWE. Most sports leagues are not things you can own, and right. and he's effectively got a couple of them. Liberty has Formula One. There's a couple of others out there. Although we got to put sports in quotation marks around WWE. Um, Do you think Ari goes after additional leagues for this new TKO company? Maybe boxing or something else? Uh, You know, they they could. Um, I don't know if there are any antitrust concerns if they start to just... It depends on the government's definition of a market. Uh, But but why not? I mean, you're going to be the king of that 
of that area, you might as well extend yourself. And sadly, Ari said this morning on CNBC, he will not be involved in the creative. So we are not going to see Ari, the agent of chaos, Emmanuel, jumping shirtless from the top rope into the center ring. We need a tag team, Ari and Elon <laughs> on one side and Vince and Triple H on the other. Uh, people would pay for that. I would gamble on that. Who would you bet on? <laughs> uh, I don't know, man. I mean, Vince in his heyday, easy. But now Vince is kind of old. Are we talking about who would actually win or are we talking about who they would script to win? Because who would oh, actually they would, win? Vince would never lose. They would script Vince to win. But you think you think Ari would script himself to lose? Yeah, I think he would do that just to just to let his new employee feel better about himself. Okay. This episode is brought to you by Hulu. Riley Keough and Lily Gladstone star in Hulu's limited series Under the Bridge, a chilling true crime story based on the acclaimed novel. Hailed as a riveting and heartbreakingly realistic work by the Chicago Sun-Times and featuring excellent performances, according to Time magazine, the series is for your Emmy consideration in all categories, including Outstanding Limited Series and Outstanding Supporting Actress in a Limited Series for Keough and Gladstone. For more information, visit fyc.hulu.com. This episode is brought to you by Cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on Cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. Let's move on to another topic that uh, you've written about this past week. The Netflix retreat from movies continues. They are no longer making 70 to 80 movies a year, which my mother would have known was unsustainable. And they are now making fewer movies, they say better movies. And we saw the trickle down of that this past week where they laid off some people and they consolidated a couple divisions and two of the longtime film executives there, Lisa Nishimura and Ian Brick, are out. What do you make of this? Not a surprise, but very upsetting to a lot of people and to the Hollywood creative community. Lisa Nishimura had been at Netflix for, I think, 15 years um, was instrumental in the company getting into stand-up uh, and into kind of documentary series. She had more recently overseen movies, sort of sub-30 million budget or so, which was sort of the indie division. I think was seen as someone with taste and with a real point of view and from sort of the Cindy Holland era, which was the, the point in time where Netflix was trying to be a little bit more like HBO than sort of the, I don't know, the entire cable dial or CBS or whatever you want to call it now. Um, but look, to your point, Netflix was making too many movies. They're trying to they're trying to cut that down um, and also have sort of more centralized decision making, which is very un Netflix, I would say, but is the you know very traditional media. And that, that's code for that's code for quality control, or at least in their mind. Well, it's it's partially quality control, but it's also um, I think just try you know if you're under pressure to deliver something better and you're Scott Stuber and you're running the film division, 
you want to have more of a say in what you're saying yes to, whereas Netflix historically has had very decentralized decision-making where people who ran different groups and were sort of a couple of levels below that could make the decisions. Um, and and they're kind of getting rid of that. And so it's it's another sign of Netflix becoming a little bit more like a, you know, a big traditional company. Yeah, it goes back to those quotes that Stuber said a couple of years ago where I think he got he got kind of made fun of a little bit where he's basically like, we're just going to make the good movies. We're going to make the movies people like. But this is actually a real strategy. I mean, they have so many movies that do not matter on the service. They come and go. They don't chart. They don't do much for them subscriber wise. It doesn't appear. And they feel like the rest of the movie business that if they put more of their eggs in you know fewer baskets, they're more likely to get bigger hits that are actually meaningful to them. And someone like Lisa Nishimura, who was doing the, the quote, quality movies, things like Power of the Dog, um, or a lot of those documentary acquisitions and movies that they made, that brought some prestige to Netflix. But they are in these, I believe Netflix is in the post-prestige phase of its existence. They don't care as much. I mean, they'll obviously do a few of the Oscar movies every year, but it just feels like every move they make is away from we are competing for the best artists and the highest uh, the the highest caliber projects to what will generate eyeballs on the service. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you nailed it there, which is that they are, you know, L Lisa made the types of projects that critics loved that really appealed to a small and influential set of viewers, but weren't, you know, weren't for the masses. Um, and they're going to make fewer of those because if they're going to make fewer projects in general and they want every project to have a bigger sort of cultural impact, making the equivalent of a Sundance movie or a film festival movie or an Oscar movie is just not at the top of the list. They'll still do it. And to your comment about people don't care, we both know that Ted Sarandos, the co-CEO of Netflix, cares a whole lot about winning awards. Oh, of course. I know he does. That's why, you know, <laughs> he... I wondered when I saw this news whether the days of the, you know, gigantic awards department at Netflix are numbered and I could see them making cutbacks there because they just don't prioritize it enough, but they're never going to get rid of that. Ted, Ted will not sleep until he has that best picture Oscar. And the fact that Apple got it before him has got to just be a constant annoyance. Well, that, that ties into, to what you wrote yes. about the Oscar changes. You, you created a natural segue that listen, I am a professional <laughs> podcaster now. Uh, okay, so let's move on to this topic where I reported this past week, the Motion Picture Academy wants to require larger theatrical releases for movies to be eligible for best picture. And it wouldn't it wouldn't be that onerous. It's actually not that expensive to put a movie in one theater in 15 to 20 markets as they are potentially going to require. They are going to have a vote on this in, at their meeting in late April. But it's causing controversy around town because this is perceived by some to be a bone that, that the Academy is throwing towards the theatrical business while not really doing much to spark movie going for the, you know, in reality, these movies, if they're in one theater in Boston or Orlando or San Diego, they're not going to reach that many more people. But what it's going to do is it's going to create a hurdle for some of these smaller movies to have to get over in order to qualify for best picture. And that has a 
impact on the entire market for films. Because when you are a small movie, when you are at a festival and you're, you know, an acquirer is looking to buy a movie to put in, uh, in the awards race, that can be part of the entire justification for buying the movie is we think we can get a best picture nomination or we think we can campaign this. But if you are then going to have to spend a couple million dollars to release the movie in theaters, that gets into that calculus. And people think that it might impact the kinds of movies that are even purchased for distribution. Um, are they overreacting here? No, this when I when I read your piece, this made me very nervous because I'd love to go back and see which of the movies that have been nominated for Best Picture over the last 10 years would not qualify under these new rules. There's there's the issue with like the if if they're doing it because they want to make sure that streaming services put their movies in theaters, that I'm I'm mostly okay with because I yeah, they can afford you, it. Netflix, Amazon, Apple can afford this. And you 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 do need, I think, to distinguish between like what wins best TV movie at the Emmys and what wins best picture at the Oscars. A movie is something that kind of comes out in theaters. But um but I think it's it's very potentially very dangerous for some of these smaller distributors that can't afford it or for movies that can't get there. Now, I get the counter argument, which is we want most of the movies that are up for Best Picture to be movies that a lot of people have seen. It's supposed to be a commercial art form. And so if most of the nominees are these movies that made you know $10 million at the box office, that's bad for the Oscars um, because people aren't going to care anymore. Um, well, or made nothing at the box office and appeared in one theater in New York or L.A., and have been primarily a streaming play that you have to subscribe to Apple TV Plus to watch. I mean, the thinking here at the Academy is that at least this will give people in these smaller cities an opportunity to see these movies in a theater for a week. You know, if they are super fans, that they can get out there and see these movies and have more of a vested interest in the Oscars and be exposed to better culture. Now, it also, what do you do then with like what happens to some of the foreign titles? Well, that's the thing. Is I that and I, you asked for examples of movies that would have been impacted. I think something like Drive My Car, which got a Best Picture nomination a couple of years ago. Some of these smaller foreign movies that the distributors don't even realize they are Oscar contenders until they start to pick up steam during the season. And at that point, if you've already put it on a streaming service, you can't unring that bell, and it all of a sudden wouldn't be eligible in this scenario. And that's what people feel that could be an unintended result here. Also, a lot of, you know, I, Franklin Leonard uh, was tweeting about this. Uh, he's uh, the Blacklist guy, and he's been on the show, that this would disproportionately hurt films from people of color, foreign films, sort of the lesser, smaller, resourced films. And I think what the Academy will likely do is they'll probably have some carve-outs here to prevent that from happening, for instance, for foreign films or some others. It really, this does seem to me like a streamer tax. Like they are trying to nudge these streamers to give their movies a more robust theatrical release to kind of play in the big boy sandbox of Hollywood. Right. Not just take advantage of the Oscars for promotion without paying a little bit back into the system that has created the value of the Oscars. So it's sort of the same reason why Netflix movies can't can no longer be screened in competition at Cannes because they're trying to sort of protect the sanctity of the theatrical release. Yeah, and I think that there is a big portion of the academy, especially in these smaller craft 
groups like sound or visual effects where their work is best experienced on a big screen. And, you know, for 80 something years, the Academy said, okay, we have films in theaters and we have films that are on television. The films that are on television go to the Emmys. The films that are in theaters go to the Oscars. Netflix, through a number of different ways, including their you know involvement in the Academy, donations, and just the fact that they were hiring film, uh, theatrical film quality filmmakers, changed that thinking. And they the thinking now is that Netflix is just like everybody else. They just have a different distribution model. And when you ask Netflix about this, they say, well, theaters aren't our business. Well, the argument might be, well, if theaters aren't your business, and maybe the Oscars shouldn't be your business either. You are very excited to put Oscar nominee on the tile for the film, but for decades, there were great movies of the week that were made for TV, and those were honored, those were honored at the Emmys. So, I don't know. It's just, to me, it, it, I'm not 100% sure what I think about this. It'll be in the details of what the Academy debates and what they ultimately end up passing, if anything. But it could be a nice little way to bring more movies um, to theaters while not really impacting what gets nominated. Yeah, I, I, you're probably right that the devil's in the details. I guess I'd need to know more. I'm sure that that streaming services are not very happy about it. But I guess Apple and Amazon are sort of trending in the direction of putting more in theaters anyways. And if they had to, I mean, what I'd love to see... And and look, this is probably for like an audience of five people, but I do love at least in Los Angeles where they'll have like they'll have theaters that show the Oscar nominated shorts or like they'll yeah. show the documentaries for a week. And you you could imagine, especially since theaters need product, pitching people on this where like in the January to February months in a in like, you know, 15 to 20 key cities, you just start having theaters that run certain types of potential Oscar nominees, or I guess they'd need to show it before to get nominated. So that makes no sense. Well, that's the that's the knock here is that some movies you don't realize are best picture contenders yeah. until later in the season when they pick up traction. And then it might be too late for some of these. But, you know, I've a couple distributors reached out to me and they're noting that it's not actually that expensive to put these movies in one theater in all these different markets. So, you know, and, and the reality of the situation is, is that no movie gets nominated for Best Picture without some kind of campaign associated with it. Uh, it's very rare where you just see out of the blue. You know, there were 300 movies that were eligible for Best Picture last year. And, you know, whittling down to those 10, only about 50 to 60 have a tiniest amount of shot of getting a nomination. So, and those are movies that have some kind of distributor behind them that can get them seen, get some marketing behind them. So I don't think it would actually be that much of a difference. And like with the Academy's recent push into um, diversity, where they are requiring diversity on movies to be eligible for best picture, the devil is in the details on that one. It's very difficult for a movie to not qualify based on all the different ways they give people to qualify under the diversity standards. So I think that this will be similar. Well, there will be carve outs, there will be, um, you know, exemptions for certain people. And we will see that the ultimate result here is just to nudge these very, very profitable streaming services to put more movies in theaters. So you're saying nothing's going to change. Well, no, I think they will change. I think you'll. I think if you live in San Diego or Austin or you know these, some of these markets, you may have the opportunity to see these movies in theaters. Um, so that could be a change, and you know we'll see if that actually is meaningful. If anyone actually shows up, because the accessibility to movies, most people watch them at home. 
So that's the ultimate goal here for people is to get their movies seen. And the streaming services have been very effective at doing that. The Academy just wants to make sure that theaters are around and this would be something to throw at them. All right, that's enough. I think we're done for today. Thank you, Lucas. Thanks, Matt. All right, we are back with the call sheet. Greg, happy second quarter of 2023. We we're done with the first quarter. And it was a, it was a great first quarter. The Aztecs are in the national championship. <laughs> right. Big, big for you. Yeah. Huge first quarter for you. But for the movie business, not great. We got the domestic numbers for the first quarter. And it seems like we've had hit after hit after hit this season, this year. But if you look at the numbers, domestically, it got to $1.2 billion for this quarter. That's down about 35 38% from 2019. Up from last year but down from the normal times for movie going. And it really just shows how the lack of product in the theaters is impacting the aggregate box office, even though individual movies can be hits. We had, you know, Scream and we had John Wick and we've had, uh, you know, this past weekend, Dungeons and Dragons did okay. There's a lot of mid-level hits. Yeah, exactly. But the level of the volume is not there. And we had Shazam was a miss and Ant-Man underperformed. So two big superhero movies not doing great. But my prediction is this does not bode well for the full year. And I am I am now going to say that the box office for 2023 will be down at least double digits and probably more than 20% for the year, which is a horrible sign for these theater chains. You're predicting down 20% from 2022 or from 2019? No, 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 from 2019. There's this big question as to when the box office is going to come back. You know, it was down about 35% last year and from 2019. And the prediction for this year was that it was going to recover a lot more. And I just don't think that full recovery is going to be there, especially since there's no Avatar this year. I mean, Aquaman 2 is not going to be Avatar over the holidays. So I, I just, I think that, you know, there's going to be hits. There's going to be a lot of hits this summer. But overall, the, the box office is going to be down more than 20%, maybe even 30%. I don't know. I, I'm not going to go that far. I just think we're in a weird time where I, I think the 2018 and 2019 era in movie going that everyone says, you know, oh, back, back when movie theaters, you know, back when we were in the normal times. Yeah, we were in the normal times because we weren't in a pandemic. But also it was this perfect storm of like, 10 years of Marvel and superhero movies culminating with these final endgame movies, right? There was like, you know, the, the, the third Thor, the final Avengers. Yeah, yeah, it, was yeah. like, it was all of these major IP franchises coming to an end. So, and, and now we just don't really have that right now. So well, I, they're trying. They're trying. They're trying their best to keep the magic alive. I just think it was a perfect storm with phase one of all of these Marvel movies ending around 2018, 2019, and everybody was going to see them. And now we're just going to kind of an awkward after period where we don't have that kind of dependable, reliable IP that people are clamoring to see anymore. Yeah. And we'll see how some of these big movies this summer do. I think you know, the summer is going to be big. Yeah. And, the, and keep in mind, these numbers I just said are domestic and international could get a big boost this year if the China movies perform. You know, these movies are all getting releases in China now, which is great, but the audiences are not showing up in China as they once did. And there's a bunch of reasons for that, but it's uh, it's still a pretty challenged market. We'll see what happens. All right, 
That's the show for today. I want to thank Lucas Shaw for coming on. I want to thank producer Greg Holbeck. And I want to thank you. We will see you on Wednesday. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.